Do turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, the passage that we read earlier. We're going to look at more than we read. written by Luke, a physician. He's writing to an an important person whose name is Theophilus, which is unfortunate because that's Theophilus' name I can imagine having. But Theophilus is an an excellent person. We we read about him in uh, the beginning of his first volume, which we know as the Gospel of Luke. And what Luke is doing is giving an apologia, an an apology, if you will, for Christianity is explaining how it is that the Christian movement is, in fact, fulfilled Judaism, that it is the fulfillment of Israel, that there is a direct connection. And so he begins rooting it at the beginning of his gospel, rooting it in the uh, Hebrew past around the temple with uh, temple priests and so on. He he then demonstrates how it is that this Yeshua, Jesus, is in fact the one who fulfills those many prophecies in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. And uh, how that as the new movement develops, it begins in the synagogue, it begins in Judaism and then pushes beyond Judaism uh, to incorporate Gentiles, progressively Gentiles, Samaritans, and then uh, Gentile people and others in the circumference. And as as Luke does this, as he presents this apologia to the general public, because it's going to go beyond Theophilus uh, to others, and as he presents this, he's targeting, of course, the Roman authorities. The Roman authorities were very touchy, they were very uncomfortable with new movements, They were very concerned to keep order in their empire, as you would imagine. We expect our governments today to show the same concern for public safety and public security as the Romans did back then, which is one of the reasons why Luke sees that he must give an account of some of the more rowdy aspects of the arrival of Christianity to the scene, because the reality was that there were one or two riots. (laughs) One or two riots provoked by Christians, or at least they were given the blame for them. And so as he's unfolding this, he identifies that the Christians themselves did not provoke disorder, that they were not in the business of raising mobs and using mob violence to get their own way in the empire, and that from time to time, The Roman authorities themselves investigated the Christian movement and recognized both its its origins within Judaism and its independence from Judaism, and so therefore its legitimate right to meet and to practice its faith without let or hindrance. That's not a very good introduction, but that's what gets us here to chapter 19. Right from the very beginning, Christians met with opposition and persecution. It came from various sources in Antioch. It came from prejudice and envy. In Lystra, it was the result of ignorant paganism. In Philippi, it was a reaction to a victory over the demonic realm. In Thessalonica, it came from an unruly mob urged on by jealous religious 
leaders in Athens. It was from secular philosophers in Corinth. It came from a mob or a group within Judaism who used the Roman court to try and silence Christians. And here again in Ephesus, we're looking at the trip to Ephesus, it is actually commercial interest that, that will ultimately be responsible for a riot developing there. So as we could look, come to this chapter, I want to say this evening Christianity is threatened then and still is by a number of factors. Let me spell them out like this. First of all, Christianity is threatened by inadequate convictions. And here I want you to notice the overlap with the previous chapter. The previous chapter introduces us to a man called Apollos. Apollos is a great orator. He's a tremendous communicator. He's a Jew, and he comes from Alexandria in North Africa. And an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures, we're told, verses 24-25, he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. In other words, he knew, he wasn't just a Jew, but he also knew about Jesus. He knew something about Jesus. In fact, he taught accurately, we're told, the things concerning Jesus. But he knew only so much. He, on, he knew only so much. He'd never been instructed in very much about Jesus. And I think he's one of these people who was a hanger, hanging around John the Baptist. He'd heard John the Baptist identify Jesus as the Lamb of God. And so Apollos was going in what he knew. He was going around teaching that Jesus was the Lamb of God. But there was a lot of stuff that Apollos had not yet come to know. And so when he comes uh, and starts to speak uh, in Ephesus, um, the, the Christians there, Priscilla and Aquila, heard him. They heard what he had to say. They were encouraged by what he said, but they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Because being nearly right is not good enough if you're a teacher. It's all right, I have to say, if you're a church member, to be nearly right. All you have to do is to be trusting in the Lord Jesus. The standard for church membership is very, very low indeed. Trusting in the Lord Jesus as your Savior. But when it comes to teaching the Word, you have to make sure you've got all the angles covered. Sincerity and enthusiasm and being generally correct is not good enough. You have to know what you're talking about. Apollos is fervent. He's enthusiastic, he's articulate, he's an orator, he's knowledgeable. He believes he understands the way of salvation as it's found in the Scripture. But these Christians, Priscilla and Aquila especially, recognized that he didn't know all that he should know. And they take him aside and they instruct him in the things of God. And the lesson is this. Inadequate convictions can lead to error. Inadequate convictions in those who teach can lead us down wrong paths, can, can lead to imbalances of doctrine. You see, a lot of things people go wrong in their Christian life, and a lot of sects emerge, not so much sects, S-E-C-T-S, in case that didn't come across uh, as it was said. That's probably because this morning's sermon is still in my head. Uh, and uh, so I've got to clarify my terms. But a lot of sects have emerged not so much because they say anything really seriously wrong, but simply because there is an imbalance in the truth that is taught. You put too much pressure on this side and 
The, the, the trajectory is away from the center of the truth. And people like that need to be instructed in the things of God. And so this man is instructed in the things of God. And he went on then from strength to strength. It was effective. The man was teachable. He went on, verse 28, chapter 18. He powerfully refuted Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Messiah was Jesus. He's right on the nail now. He's right on the, on the coin. He's on the mark. Christianity can be threatened by inadequate convictions. Secondly, Christianity is threatened by unregenerate discipleship. Oh, well, you say, unregenerate. What is that? Well, to generate means to give life. To regenerate means to give new life. To be unregenerate means you don't have new life, which means you're not really a Christian. And uh, discipleship means to be following Jesus, a follower of Jesus. So it means you're not a Christian, but you're following Jesus. Or at least you're saying that you're following Jesus. Or you profess to follow Jesus. You can be a churchgoer and be an unregenerate disciple. You can say that you're following Jesus, but not have the new life that Jesus gives. And that's what we find in chapter 19 at the beginning. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. What is that saying to you? Normally that word disciple means a follower of Jesus. Here were people who made a profession to follow Jesus. If you'd said to them, are you a Christian? They'd have said, sure. And he met these people, and he asked them a number of questions. There's a bit of a conversation. Let's look at the conversation that goes on. He asks two questions. First, Paul's question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? It was a leading question. And it exposed where they stood. No, they said, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, apparently, these people were disciples of John the Baptist. And as disciples of John the Baptist, they would have heard John talk about the Holy Spirit. When the Messiah comes, he will bring with him the Holy Spirit. I baptize with water, but he who is coming after me is greater than I. When he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So they'd heard about the Holy Spirit, but what they're actually saying is that they didn't know that the Holy Spirit had arrived yet. The language they use is very light language that you will find elsewhere where it says in John chapter 7 verse 39, the Spirit had not yet been given. Literally, the Spirit was not yet because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, what they were signaling when they said this, no, we've not even heard of the Holy Spirit, was that they were stuck halfway between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They were stuck in the, in the regime of John the Baptist. They'd heard the Messiah was coming. They had gone and been taught by John the Baptist, but as far as they knew, what John was teaching had not yet been fulfilled. That was the first clue. The second clue confirms it. Paul asks them a second question. What baptism did you receive? Their answer is John's baptism. So Paul explains to them, look, 
The baptism of John was a baptism of repentance, looking forward to the arrival of the Messiah. It pointed forward. It was a kind of precursor to the Messiah's coming. So Paul identifies these things. And in other words, when, when we read about these people, you need to understand, therefore, these people belong in a particular category, different from Apollos. Apollos is a follower of John the Baptist, but he's got with, gone with John long enough to hear John say about Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. These people haven't got there yet. They met John. They were influenced by John. They were instructed by John. They were baptized by John. But they weren't around when Jesus turned up. And John said, Behold the Lamb of God. They are still stuck in a pre-Christian phase. That's what we need to grasp about these people. They are in a pre-Christian place. And so what has to happen here is they have to be taught about the Messiah. They have to be taught, taught that Jesus is the Christ. And so they are taught these things, and uh, hey presto, by the grace of God, <laughs> that's kind of magic, I didn't really mean all that, but hey presto, by the grace of God, they are brought to faith in the Lord Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. So these people had been ignorant of Christ, ignorant of Pentecost. They hadn't realized that now the Messiah had come. All the Old Testament prophecies that John had re reinforced in his teaching about the, the last days and the new covenant and the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit had all reached their climatic fulfillment in Christ and at Pentecost. When they heard this, they believed it. They were baptized. And God does an amazing repeat performance of Pentecost. One of those rare things you find in the book of Acts, a repeat performance of Pentecost, where signs and wonders, the phenomena at Pentecost that bound the believers together and indicated in a supernatural way, this is of God takes place in their lives. So as you look at the book of Acts generally, you find the phenomena of Pentecost happens to Jewish believers on the day of Pentecost. It happens to the first Gentile believers. And now it's happening for the third, sorry, it happens to one in between. I got that wrong. Jewish believers, it happens to Samaritan believers, it happens to Gentile believers, and now it's happening to pre-Christian believers who are followers of John the Baptist, and that kind of sorts it. That covers everybody. That covers all the parts. And each of these major parts, the phenomena of Pentecost is repeated. And that's it. It will never be done again. Never done again in the pages of Scripture, or in the history of the church. Because the Spirit has come to the world. It has come to the pre-Christians, it's come to the Jews, it's come to the Samaritans, it's come to the Gentiles, it's come to the world. The Spirit has arrived. These are the last days. So Christianity is threatened by unregenerate discipleship. These people were talking and teaching and so on, but they weren't 
they weren't right yet. They needed to be born again. They'd never been born again. They needed to be regenerated by the Spirit of God. And here they are, and they're born again. Thirdly, Christianity is not only threatened by inadequate convictions and by unregenerate discipleship. Christianity is threatened by popular superstition. Look at verse 11. Ephesus was a a pagan center dominated not only by idolatry and by the temple of Artemis, but also by a flourishing magical and spiritual industry. An industry that claimed to have some connection and control of unseen spiritual powers. Now from the very beginning, we've seen Christianity separating itself from magic. But the private side of paganism in the first century world was an attempt to manipulate spiritual forces via uh, magical incantations and ritual acts and superstitious paraphernalia in order to ward off evil and bring well-being. One of the themes of this passage is the theme of power, one of the big themes of the Bible. And what we discover in verse 11 is the power of God at work through his apostle, Paul. It's an amazing thing. Let me read it to you in verses 11 and 12. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had, been touched, that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. There was a power encounter. There was this amazing action of God through Paul's ministry. Verse 11 opens literally like this. Powers beyond the usual God was doing through Paul's hands. And then at the end of the section, it says that they grew in power, literally grew in power. Now these extraordinary miracles were extraordinary because they were not ordinary. It was not part of the normal life of the church. These were extraordinary miracles. They were of God and they were through Paul. There was no magical power in his sweaty headband or in his leather apron. The headband he wore when he was working with his leather and the apron apron that he had on as he worked with leather. It must have been really frustrating for the Apostle Paul to go into his leather working job in the morning with Aquila and Priscilla and find that people had had stolen his sweaty headband from the day before. Where was his apron? He had to keep on buying these aprons and Headbands that people were stealing and using and taking to people. Amazing. It was an amazing miracle. It was an amazing time. And there are two, two kinds of people that respond to this story. There are the skeptics and there are those who are uh, into magic. Uh, let, me, let me think of this, the skeptic, first of all. Liberal commentators, they just go absolutely start raving bonkers when they read this kind of stuff because they just cannot... They cannot process. We cannot process this kind of story. And so they say what this is is legend. This is legendary. This kind of miracle that that Luke is recognizing here. But Luke himself, as he tells the story, you can tell he's uncomfortable about his report. It's so extraordinary. He uses the word extraordinary to tell you that this this was not normal. This was not normal stuff. Uh, You notice... The text does not say that Paul started sending out sweatbands to people. 
he, he wasn't in the business of, of manufacturing and then producing aprons and sweatbands so that people could buy them and take them away and use them in some kind of magical way to heal their friends. No, it was the people themselves who stole his sweatbands and aprons. They were doing the stealing and God was doing the miracle. They were taking them away and God was working in people's lives. They, they found that power flowed to heal sickness and evict demons. And look as distinguishing from this action from the magic uh, that was there in Ephesus. Now, what we're meant to see as we read of this extraordinary movement is the connection between Paul and Peter and Jesus. They're the only three people in the Bible who do this kind, or about whom this kind of thing is said. Just as Israel's sufferers reached out to touch Jesus' robe and they were healed. Just as people sought to be in the shadow of Peter as he walked past so that they would be healed. So now people, Gentiles, were grabbing cloth that had touched Paul's skin and rushed it to their loved ones who were being healed by it. See, what you see in the pages of the New Testament is nothing like people, people talk glibly about healing miracles today. I, don't, I do not for one second doubt that God heals. Let me tell you that. Straight up, God heals. But the way people talk about healing today is so crassly out of proportion to the reality that we see all around us. Healing is extraordinary today. It doesn't happen very often. And it has absolutely, it bears absolutely no comparison to what you find in the pages of the New Testament. In the Gospels and in Acts, let me tell you what's happening. We in our day are familiar with the effects of the AIDS epidemic and other epidemics. We see them as aggressive, contagious forces. People cannot resist them. In the Gospels and in Acts, the healing power of God is aggressive and contagious. I mean, it's happening. People aren't able to do anything about it. They can't. It's not under their control. It is it's happening all over the place. During the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, the boundaries of illness and possession are pushed back by the mighty power of God. That's what it has to say to the skeptic. But then there's the mimic. I've watched these high-profile televangelists and other faith healers who've offered to send out material like silk handkerchiefs and other trinkets that they've prayed over. I've seen them do that. And I've had to minister to the people who've been disappointed by that. Over the years, I remember one man who was uh, anxious that God would in work in his life, and he had been He'd been listening to this particular televangelist. He'd sent him money. And I remember one day I came in and he was in tears because the televangelist had sent him a personalized letter. The old guy didn't realize he was in Canada. It's nothing about Canadians, by the way, in case you thought I'm being disrespectful. But Canadians, Canadians, but this was back in the 70s or whatever. I was two at the time. And, and he, he, uh, 
he had this personalized letter from this evangelist saying, I need another hundred dollars. And this poor old man, he couldn't afford, he'd been giving hundred dollars away to this evangelist so much and he, had no, he could not do it another way. He was in tears. The manipulative kind of thing. I've seen all that stuff. But when you come to the stuff you see the apostles doing here, the miracles that are happening here are not part of Paul's strategy even for reaching Ephesus. Paul isn't even in control of what's going on here. It is happening. Paul looked at these miracles, and do you know how he describes them? He describes them as the signs of an apostle. They're the works of Jesus, and they're the marks of an apostle. That's why the apostle's word is in the Bible, because the apostles are the people through whom we get to know Jesus. People took note of them, that they had been with Jesus. How did they do that? It's because they did, or things happened through them that happened through Jesus. That's why we take them seriously. Well, Ephesus was famous in the ancient world for every form of magic. It was awash with magic. And it was full of people who were practitioners who went about claiming to be able to cure illnesses and cast out demons. And among them were some Jews. And Luke draws our attention in verse 13 to some of these Jews. In fact, to a family business, a father and his seven sons. Some of these Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So they were using the name of Jesus. In fact, they were using the name of any power that, would, that they, you could come up with if it might make them an extra buck. And so they're going about saying, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, verse 13, I command you to come out. Now here is, the, here is the essence of superstition and magic as opposed to genuine religion. It is belief that the repetition of a name or the repetition of a form of words has within it a magical power or, 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 or the ability to actually change reality. To change reality. And so you will find in some circles there's this constant repetition of the name of Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. If only you say the name of Jesus, there will be power there. Sometimes you're told, I was told, I remember being told this, when, when, when I was a, a, a young man, that uh, uh, if, if I was dealing with, with somebody who wasn't a Christian or someone who was demon-possessed, I had to plead the blood. So I plead the blood of Jesus. And if I say the blood of, if, as long as I say the words, the blood of Jesus, I'll be safe. Now, that's just superstition. Well, you say, don't we have to believe in the name of Jesus to be saved? Yes, we do. Don't we have to pray in the name of Jesus? Yes, we do. But the name of Jesus is not some mystical, magical formula. In the name of Jesus has to do with who he is. It has to do with the Jesus who's been revealed. It's, it's an understanding that we're acting in the name of the one whom God has exalted far above everything. We're acting in his name to do his will in the world. So they were, these people, they were doing this. And they were doing it using Jesus' name as a power source or a socket into which they could plug as a spell or an incantation. But they themselves, they themselves were not Christians. They had not seen that they were sinners in need of being forgiven. They never pretended to be. Jesus was merely a tool that they were using 
They'd seen Paul do these things, or these things happening as a result of Paul's ministry, and they, they thought, well, this Jesus must be some kind of spiritual master, a guru kind of thing, and we'll, we'll, we'll tap into that, and we'll be able to make some money. Now, that is not Christian teaching, and it is not true faith. It is gross superstition, and at worst, demonism. And the nature of it is exposed for what it is. Look at verses 15 to 17. The evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the evil spirit in the man mastered all of them, overpowered them, sent them out of the house naked and wounded, gave them a thorough beating over, and fear fell upon everyone. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Partly the fact that the name of Jesus didn't work on this occasion convinced people that the name of Jesus was stronger and they extolled the name of Jesus. And out, out of that, the Word of God spread mightily and prevailed. Here, here is the Word of God doing what God had wanted to happen right at the very beginning when He said to Adam and Eve in the garden that they should increase and multiply. Here's the Word of God increasing and multiplying and prevailing mightily. Now, the bulwark against that kind of superstition is true faith. And faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. It was the statements of Christ, it is the authoritative Word of Christ that, dis, that builds up our faith and that fortifies us against the work of the evil one. God's Word, for all their craft and force, that is the powers of darkness, one moment will not linger, but spite of hell, shall have its course, it is written with his finger. The Word of God. Well, lastly, Christianity is threatened by vested interests. And this takes us to 21, to the end of the chapter. Very quickly, Ephesus was the center for the worship of Artemis, whom the Romans called Diana. She symbolized sexual fertility. She was worshipped by, by cult prostitutes. She represented the very heart of idolatry in the ancient world. Sometimes we get the idea, it's presented to us, especially by liberal kinds of people, that, that ancient paganism that was displaced by Christianity was some kind of pure, wonder, wonderful thing, wonderful time. I remember watching some programs about the Maya and the Inca Indians and uh, those great buildings that they erected and the things that happened on those monuments that they erected, of course, were glided over by the narrator. It was one of these BBC programs, and the BBC are not known for being very explicit when it comes to anything that might favor Christianity. Uh, and they, they're the Bigoted Broadcasting Corporation. That's what BBC stands for. And uh, what they, of course, skimmed over was the fact that when they were discovered, these Mayan and Incan uh, Monuments, what they discovered was tens, if not hundreds of thousands of bones of bodies that had been offered as sacrifices to the pagan gods. Little children, women, old people offered in sacrifice to these pagan gods. The paganism is a bad thing. And paganism ruled Europe. Paganism dominated Europe. And the coming of Christianity rolled back paganism. Within 300 years, there was no idolatry anywhere in Europe. And that was not done 
by Christians creating political parties to get rid of idolatry, or by Christians forming mobs to get rid of idolatry. They simply dealt with it in their own hearts. And that's what you find in this story. For example, as you get to the end of that first that part we read, we, we hear about some people who were watching all of this happening, and they were converted, and they came confessing and divulging their practices. A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of everyone. They weren't told to do this. They weren't forced to do this. They weren't instructed to do this. This was a spontaneous thing. They came and they burned their books. That was their own heart was telling them to deal with their past in this way. And the value of these books came to 50,000 pieces of silver. The apostles were not telling them to do this, but they did this spontaneously. And in the rest of the chapter, the authorities find this out. Some people find this out, and they make a great... A guy called Demetrius gets up, and he makes a speech, and he appeals to the population. He appeals to their emotions, and he says, You know, our town is famous for Diana, the idol. They come to visit her and her entourage on the mountain here. And here are these Christians, and they've just destroyed all this literature worth a lot of money. And we make a lot of money from these people that come to Ephesus to see Diana and her entourage. These Christians are a threat to our economy. He tried that angle, and that's what sparked a mob and mob violence. Christianity is faced by this popular uprising, by vested interests. When uh, the slave trade was being discussed in England. William Wilberforce, for 25 years, worked hard to try and have abolition. And when eventually the, the Parliament of, uh, Brit of Britain passed the legislation for the ending of slave trade in the British Empire, it was to a cost of, at that time, over 25 million pounds to the exchange, to, to the, uh, which would be, in our currency today, billions of dollars of income to the national treasury. It, it has been called one of the one or two righteous acts in the whole history of humanity. It was an amazing work of God. Because faithfulness to Christ sometimes costs money to the world around it sometimes rubs against the vested interests of society. It challenges the values of society. We can't help it. We don't do it because we, we raise up a mob against them. It just has implications. And we'll always be exposed to persecution for it. Well, here is, here's a power encounter, the power of vested interests, the power of superstition, the power of unbelief. And here is the power of God at work confronting the powers, overwhelming the powers, and establishing Jesus as Lord. Well, let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we encounter the powers of our age and our day, not all that different from back then, looking different perhaps, taking on different shape, using different language, but nonetheless set up against your Son, our Savior, the Messiah, Jesus. We pray, Father, that you would help us to boldly stand for him 
and to be focused in on truth if we are uncertain that we would dive deep into the Word of God to become more certain. If perhaps we profess Christianity but we haven't really been born again, we pray that we would cry to you for mercy and for that new birth. We pray that you would keep us focused on Jesus. We ask in his strong name. Amen.